1 Samuel 18, title of the sermon, Honor and Jealousy. We're continuing in the tale of, of Saul and David. You know, jealousy is one of those emotions that can be very conflicting. We'll talk as we get into our application about the reality that not all jealousy is an intrinsically sinful. And yet the sin of jealousy, when jealousy is sinful, it drives people to do things that they would never otherwise do. It is a powerful emotion. An emotion which, in its proper place, as God has designed it, can be a true blessing and used of Him greatly. Outside of its proper place, um, finds in it great danger and great evil. We've been tracing Saul for some time. We have seen his character form and develop into that of self-righteousness and selfishness. We have seen the promise that he will be replaced by one better than he. And now we're beginning to watch as this transition takes place in Israel between this rejected King Saul and this accepted King David. And today we're going to focus again on Saul. I know we're, we're trying to transition to David and we'll have our messages to, to learn of his character. But we're going to focus on Saul again and we're going to see him become deeply jealous, sinfully jealous of the man that David is, of the virtue that he has, and of the way that the Lord is using him. And as we do so, I trust that we'll learn some lessons ourselves and have an opportunity to understand our own hearts a little bit better as it relates to this emotion of jealousy and how we can ensure, by God's grace, that we don't fall into the sin of jealousy. So we pick up in 1 Samuel 18. Again, I'm going to attempt to be ambitious and get through the entire chapter in verse 1 where we read this. And it came to pass when he, that's David, had made an end of speaking unto Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. We pick up quite literally immediately following the conversation with Saul on the battlefield where David introduced himself to the king. Perhaps you remember that from two weeks ago. David has presented himself to Saul, still holding the head of Goliath. And the scriptures tell us that when he had finished doing so, the heart of David and Jonathan were knit together. You perhaps recognized already that Jonathan and David have more similarities than they do differences when it comes to their faith and their perspective. And recall I said last time, I have to take a step back in this, Recall I said last time that we didn't know where Jonathan was, that whether he was on the battlefield or whether uh, he was off somewhere on some errand. And uh, I had mentioned that it would seem likely that he wasn't there or else Jonathan perhaps would have been the one to do this. But here we see that Jonathan is in fact there. So if if, uh, you had framed that in your mind, we, we need to alter that a little bit. And we see that Jonathan must have been present for here just at the end of uh, David speaking to Saul, Jonathan is in fact there and his heart or his soul, as the scriptures tell us, is knit to the soul of David. That word in the Hebrew literally meaning to be tied or to be bound together. 
Jonathan and David found between each other a mutual love and a passion for the glory of God and for His Word that was not shared among many in Israel in that day. Perhaps Jonathan, uh, after that, that initial battle where he had done some great things for the Lord, perhaps even before that, he kind of felt maybe like the lonely man on the island, like that guy where, where he's the only one, he's the only one that has a zeal for the Lord. Uh, he's the only one that wants to serve God, the same feeling that Elijah had after the Mount Carmel experience where he tells God, God, I'm the only one, and God rebukes him and says, absolutely not, you're not the only one. And uh, throughout time, it has always seemed as though the men that will stand upon the truth of God's Word and will truly seek to obey the Lord and, and to, to trust Him and to take Him at His Word, that men like that have always kind of felt like they're on an island only to be reminded at certain times by God that in fact there are others. There are others that want what they want. There are others that believe what they believe. There are others that are willing to stand as they were willing to stand. And so they found, David and Jonathan found this, this bond, this unity. They were bound together in soul, the Scriptures tell us. And Jonathan loved David as he loved his own soul. Several months ago, in fact, in two weeks, we'll be reviewing it together. We memorized Psalm 131, verse 1. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And that is what we see here. Spiritual unity, a unity of passion, a unity of understanding, a unity of faith in the Lord. Jonathan, the man who presented himself before a garrison of the Philistines in faith and allowed God to use him in a miraculous way to destroy the Lord's enemies and deliver the nation of Israel from their distress. David, the man who presented himself before one Philistine, a giant, in faith and allowed God to use him in a miraculous way to destroy the Lord's enemies and deliver the nation of Israel from their distress. This was a unity of spiritual perspective, a unity of faith and faith. It was the kind of friendship that grows from meeting a person of similar mindset, desire, and direction. And this would create one of the most dynamic friendships in all of the Bible. We don't learn, we, we, we see friendships, but we don't see a great deal of friendship interactions in the Bible. But here we see one of the most dynamic examples of this friendship between Jonathan and David. If you have ever had a true best friend, a friend who is so close to you, not just in physical mindset, but in spiritual mindset, then you perhaps understand what a blessing this must have been both to Jonathan and David. You might perhaps be able to understand the kind of relationship that they had. They became fast friends. They became the very best of friends. Their souls were knit together. Almost as an afterthought, it is mentioned in verse 2 that from that day forward, Saul took David and would no longer allow him to go back to his father's house in Bethlehem. That's what we see. Verse 2 says, Saul took him that day, just the simple word for to take, and would let him go no more home to his father's house. The, the minimal focus upon this event is perhaps not surprising to us and for two perspectives or for two reasons. First, uh, we, we know that the final verses of chapter 16, if you remember, the final verses of chapter 16, Saul uh, says that Saul was going to take David, was going to make him his armor bearer, was going to love him. And here is where we see that happen. Second, we, we see that the focus of the text is not really upon the glory of David at all. 
The focus of the text today is upon the character of David. And Jonathan's assessment of David's character gives us far more insight into the kind of man that David was than Saul's assessment of David's character. In other words, we see Jonathan knit his soul to David and love him. And Jonathan, being a man of faith, him knitting his soul to David tells you something about David, does it not? We've seen Jonathan's character. We see David's character. And the fact that they are so unified tells us that their mindset is similar and that gives us more insight into who David is. Now, Saul's going to have his own assessment of David's character throughout this chapter and the chapters to come. And we're not going to be able to very well trust that assessment. Saul is going to see David as a usurper, as a dangerous man. And he's going to do so not because David is in fact such, but because Saul is threatened by David. And so this is going to give us a great assessment of David's character through Jonathan. And here it is um, that we see the important contrast between these two relationships. Saul being a completely carnal man, no mindset for anything spiritual, sees David's physical achievements and plans to use David to defeat the enemies that he has and to bring glory to him. Jonathan, being a man of complete faith, sees David's spiritual achievements and unites himself with David as another man who deeply loves God. Saul loves David for what David can do for him. Jonathan loves David for what David is in the Lord. Believers in Jesus Christ, the best friends you will ever have outside of Christ in this life, the kind of friendships you should seek to foster are those that are built around your mutual love and devotion to the Lord God, motivated by no other motive than the blessed fellowship that is to be found upon, uh, among one another in Christ. Young people, as you are seeking to find and choose friends, I know that it's not always an easy thing, particularly for, for some of you who um, perhaps don't have as wide of circles right now of uh, opportunity for friends. And that can, in a manner of speaking, if I can put it this way, make you a little desperate when you, when you find certain people that maybe aren't as like-minded and yet, hey, they'll be my friend. May I encourage you that as you seek to find those close friends and you patiently wait for those close friends, that you wait for those friends with whom you can unite yourself and knit yourself together in the Lord, with whom you share a, the common bond, not just of belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, but taking the Lord at His Word, that you would make those friends your closest friends, that you would make those friends your counsel. David and Jonathan may have for many years not had a lot of close friends. But the time came when they found that person. That person who was close enough to the Lord that they could be close to that friend without feeling more distant from the Lord. And would to God He would give us those and would to God we would seek those and wait for those. So Saul takes David. He doesn't allow him to go home and presumably David becomes Saul's armor bearer at this point. We don't see that in the text here. We saw that back in 1 Samuel 16. And we would recognize at this point as well that though the Philistines fled and this battle is over, it seems likely as we walk through the text that Saul is going to continue to fight, continue to pursue his enemies for just a little bit longer before returning completely from the battlefield. 
Our minds, however, are quickly directed back to this friendship between David and Jonathan in the text where we read this in verses 3 and 4. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle, which would be his belt. The closeness of this friendship is grasped only within the context of what Jonathan is doing here. We, we see that the scriptures tell us that they, they knit their souls together, and certainly that's powerful language. But here we see what we might um, consider to be an, a custom of Eastern culture. It was not uncommon in that day to hear of covenants between men such as this, a voluntary and binding agreement that would have effectively made these men brothers. And that's literally what's happening here. These men are effectively making themselves brothers. Obviously, they're not blood brothers, but this covenant is a binding together that would effectively make them brothers. As a token of this covenant, which Jonathan swore to David, Jonathan took his outer robe, he took his armor, he took his weapons, and he gave them all to David. This was an honor of the highest magnitude to be allowed to wear the clothing of Royalty. Now, he was not the king. He was the king's son. But he was next to the king. And for the king's son to take his armor, his clothing, which would have been fine, his sword, which was probably one of the best swords in Israel, and his bow, and to give them to David was just a tremendous honor. We might liken this to what happens in Esther 6. You recall that one of the ways in which the king desired to delight and and to um, honor Mordecai was to take the king's clothing and to put it on Mordecai and then to parade him through the streets and say, this is a man for whom the king would desire to honor. Now, I read that and I say, wow, you know, what an honor, right? You get to wear the king's clothes and go through the streets. Not not really all that. I, I don't think of that as a big deal. But that would have been a huge deal. And that would have been second to none as far as honor. I'd think, you know, send me a check in the mail or something, that'd be a nice honor. But, but this was a really big deal. And it would have been a big deal to David as well. Now here we see Jonathan effectively seal this brotherly covenant which he makes with David. And he gives David these, not just through this, his clothing, but it reflects that David now has a position of honor in Jonathan's eyes. When we read in verse 5 a quick transition within the context of David's role in Israel, remember he started out as the armor bearer, but notice what it says in verse 5. And David went out whithersoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely, and Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Uh, Now, David begins as an armor bearer, but we see him very quickly move up in the ranks because he is a young man who was circumspect. He was intelligent. He behaved himself wisely. He did what he was told. He did it well. He was well accomplished. He was, we already know he's a mighty man of valor. He was a warrior. He was a musician. He was a poet. This man uh, it has the favor of the Lord upon him. And so as Saul sees, he makes him his armor bearer and he, he realizes that armor bearer is not good enough. That this kid can do great things. And so he's moving up in the ranks very, very quickly. It would be uh, akin to you know, getting that new guy at work and he's just very good at what he does and he finds his way up quickly into a position of leadership because he is so good at what he does. 
David is soon made a military leader. He's set over the men of war. He's extremely well favored by the men that he leads, which means he wasn't just a good warrior. He was a good leader. And he was a good servant. Everyone liked David. They saw in him these unique and favorable qualities. And of course, we must not leave out the fact that the Lord was with him. We might call this the honeymoon phase of David's relationship with Saul. In 1 Samuel 16, we remember the scriptures tell us that Saul did indeed love David. Saul sees David's potential. But knowing the character of Saul, we need to temper our understanding here. Saul loved David. But it was not a love that said, wow, this kid is talented, I love him for that. It was, wow, this kid is talented, successful, well-favored, I love what he can do for me. Right? Saul says, I'm so happy that I found this guy who can win my battles and bring me glory. I'm so happy I found this guy who can keep the people happy and bring me glory. I'm so happy I found this guy that I can look at and say, yeah, I taught him everything he knows. That's what Saul wants here. That's why Saul is happy. That's why Saul loves David. Saul loves David because Saul feels he can use David. But the honeymoon is over quite quickly here. Look with me in verses 6 and 7. And it came to pass as they came, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played, and they said... Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. So the scene shifts here again. The battle is over. Everything is done. They're coming back from slaying the Philistine. They're marching home victoriously, and they have a victory parade, right? And we we see this today just in the context of sports, not so much in the context of, of battles. But we see after the Super Bowl, after the World Series, after, you know, whatever it might be, the victory parade where you parade the warriors, you parade the athletes through the streets and everybody cheers and yells for them and there's dancing and there's singing and a similar thing would happen. And notice it says in the text that this, that the women came out singing and dancing to meet King Saul. So this was intended to honor the king and, and by the way, all those people that fought for him. But this was intended really to honor the king. And so the king is up, he's grandstanding, he's happy, he's getting his glory and all of that. The music was playing. You can perhaps imagine the pomp and the glory that Saul sought as he rode through the streets and he, he um, was the head of this victorious army. He perhaps thought back to that first battle, that first victory over the Philistines recorded in 1 Samuel 11 when Saul, filled with the enabling of the Spirit of the Lord, delivered the city of Jabesh-Gilead out of the hands of the Philistines, excuse me, out of the armies of the the Ammonites, excuse me. And all the nation rejoiced that that they had delivered them through the king and the king was set up and they said, anyone that, that said, we don't want Saul to be king, let's bring him out and let's kill him. And Saul had just been exalted on that day. He was perhaps thinking back to that time and remembering the exaltation. And here he's got this new guy, David, and David is his ticket. David is his, his ticket to success again, his ticket to the Lord's favor, and therefore his ticket to the same glory that he had felt before, that he had received before. But there was something different this time around. The music was playing, the women came out dancing and rejoicing, and they rejoiced. Saul has slain his thousands attributing thousands of men having been killed by Saul, which of course would have been a great honor for for him as a warrior. Then they put in there, and David, his ten thousands, ascribing greater honor and glory 
to the young man David than they were giving to their king. Now think back, consider all that we've learned of Saul's character, and just imagine how he must have felt when he heard those words. Don't think too hard, though, because we'll find out exactly how he felt in the next verse. Look with me in verses 8 and 9. And Saul was very wroth, very angry. And the saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. Saul was wroth. That Hebrew word literally meaning to glow warm or to emblazon. We might describe it today as Saul's eyes blazed with anger and jealousy. He is angry because David was ascribed ten thousands. He was only ascribed thousands of enemies slain. The people without question sought to give greater glory or at least greater accomplishment to David than the accomplishment with which they gave to their king. And from this day forward, the scriptures tell us Saul eyed David. He became suspicious of David. That's the idea there. Kind of when you're looking out of the corner of your eye at someone there, you always want them, you always want to see what they're doing. You always want to know, have you ever been walking in front of someone that you don't trust? And you kind of walk like this so that you you can keep your peripheral vision on them because you don't know if they're going to, you know, try to give you a flat tire and hit the back of your shoe or or, uh, whatever it might be. You just don't trust them. So you want to keep an eye on them. That's the idea here. Saul, from this point on, feels compelled to keep an eye on David because he says, wow, David has glory, David has honor, David has victory, he has the heart of the people. The only thing he could have left, the only thing left he could take from me, is the way Saul thinks of it, is the kingdom. And perhaps as soon as he thought that thought, he remembered Samuel looking at him and saying, God has chosen a man better than you. So Saul is very suspicious here. He doesn't know of the anointing of Samuel, of David, but he is becoming very suspicious here. He becomes the man on David's, excuse me, on Saul's, David becomes the man on Saul's watch list. In, in modern vernacular, he would have called up his, his uh, um, intelligence agency and said, hey, bug this guy's phones. Hey, have a tail on this guy. The, I, I, I want to know everything that comes in and out of this guy apartment. I want to know. I want to know what he says. I want to know what people are saying to him. I need to know what's going on here. You keep this guy under surveillance. These feelings of of jealous rage, however, did not stay in his heart very long. They manifested themselves quite quickly. Look at verses 10 and 11. Scriptures tell us, and it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul And he prophesied in the midst of the house. And David played with his hand as at other times. And there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence twice. Well, the war is over. Saul is back home. And as he's back home, recall recall prior to this battle, prior to the war with the Philistines and, and Goliath, Uh, David had been commissioned to play for Saul when an evil spirit came upon him. We talked about that, what that means. Well, these evil spirits find their way back to Saul here after the war in verses 10 and 11. And there's several things to note about this. First, we need to understand what it means that when the evil spirit came upon Saul, he prophesied. Now, when we think of prophecy, and and we've tried to invalidate this through our word studies and understanding in this church, 
But we typically think of what we would call foretelling, the, uh, telling of the future, foretelling, where you are giving a, a message of something that is going to come. That's prophecy. But really, when the scripture uses the word prophecy, that is the minority use. It's the, the, the lesser use of the word prophecy to speak of telling the future. The word to prophesy or the idea of prophecy is to, to foretell, to tell a message specifically to utter forth the words of another. Now, as we think of prophecy most regularly in the scripture, we think of the, telling the message of the Lord. The prophet was a man who declared the word of the Lord. And then he would sometimes use signs, wonders, and foretelling in order to validate the message. But the focus of the ministry of the prophet was not telling the future or not doing signs and wonders. The focus of the prophet was to foretell the word of God was to tell the people God's word, God's message for that day, to call them back to him. But it didn't just have to be God's message when we consider this word prophesy. It could be simply the message of another. And what we see here is that Saul became, if we could put it this way, the prophet of the evil spirit. The evil spirit is taking over him now. It's becoming more influential. Whereas before, perhaps it was minimal. It was just changing his mood. Now it is uttering things through him. So the servants of Saul did what they had done in the past. They called for David. Now David's around, so that's convenient. They called for David to play music. But see, the problem now is Saul knows David. Saul didn't know David before. He was just the, the faceless guy who was playing for him and calming him down. But now Saul knows David, and David is not exactly the kind of guy that creates a calming effect on Saul, is he? He's not the kind of guy who you, Saul looks at and just says, oh, okay, things are going to be good now. David's here. Things have changed. Now, Saul looks at David and he begins to glow hot, right? He begins to emblazon a little bit. So we can imagine that the music that was intended to calm Saul down is going to be greatly hindered by Saul's personal feelings for the man David. So David is playing the harp and, and, and as, as Saul is sitting there listening to this music with resentment in his heart and this growing fear and the threat of David becoming this great man, David's playing and Saul, for whatever reason, has a spear in his hand. Maybe this was a common thing that Saul, perhaps instead of holding a scepter, he was a man of war, perhaps he held a spear. Uh, maybe it wasn't a common thing. Maybe Saul was just sitting there and then he kind of grabs the spear, like, don't, don't worry about me, David, don't look at me while I'm grabbing this instrument to impale you. We don't really know, but however it worked out, Saul had a spear in his hand, and he tried, he said in his heart, and then what is in his heart came out of his arm, that he is now going to attempt to impale David to the wall. And so he wants to destroy David here, and, and this doesn't just happen once, in fact. The scriptures tell us this happened twice. You can perhaps imagine what it must have been like to be David here. You're playing your instrument before the king. He's already deeply agitated. You've seen this before, but now it seems as though he's not responding as he did before. Instead of him just looking off into the distance and enjoying the music, now he's eyeing you as you're playing this music, and he doesn't look very calm. He has a spear in his hand. He's eyeing you with anger, and then up he pops in a rage. He seeks to kill you. He throws the spear at you, you dodge out of the way and you didn't die. Well, that's a good thing. And then the servants come up the next time and they say, hey, Saul is pretty angry again. Could you come play your instrument? Uh-uh. Um, no, thanks. You know, there, there's got to be someone else that can play an instrument in the land, right? But David doesn't do that. 
See, David recognizes that Saul is still the Lord's anointed. David will do what he's told by the one who has been commissioned by God to lead the nation. So he plays again, and he almost gets speared again. He does so risking his own life. And at this point, it's important to make a clear distinction. We are focusing in large part upon Saul today, as I've mentioned, but really what the text is attempting to show us is the character of David. When you see a man nearly get impaled and then come back to play again and nearly get impaled again, why? Not, not necessarily because he loves Saul, but because he loves God and Saul is God's king. He's the king over Israel. David is doing what he's doing completely, if I can use the word myopically focused upon what does God want? Not what is the physical advantage, not what are the dangers, but what does God ask of me? And David knew that Saul was the Lord's anointed. And we're going to see this come up again and again, and it's going to lead us to an understanding of David's character, which one of these days will will really systematize and will set down completely. David's a man of war. He behaves himself wise in battle. He's a man of submission. He obeys the king, even as the king is trying to kill him. And as we consider the negative example of Saul today, please don't overlook exactly how incredible the virtue and the example of David is here. The text is quick to assess Saul's problem, stated in verse 12. Look with me as we read verses 12 through 14. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. Saul feels threatened, and here is where we're boiling down to the issue Saul feels threatened by David. He's afraid of David. He's afraid of the fact that the Lord is with him and no longer with Saul. Therefore, continuing in verse 13, Saul removed him from him, removed David from Saul, and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people, and David behaved himself wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. We all handle ourselves differently when we come to problems, when we come to Um, controversies, when we come to areas where we struggle emotionally, we might say. In this case, Saul chose in his fear and his his threat of David. He saw David as a threat, so he chose to separate David from the palace, separate him from Gibeah, separate him from the people, the servants, separate him from the area. But, But in doing so, he made David a captain over thousands. So basically, he, he said, okay, David, you've been here for a while. It's great. You're doing a good job. I'm going to promote you. You're going to go out in the field and you're going to keep fighting. Doubtless, what Saul wanted to see happen was David fall in battle. But his strategy still backfired. See, because now David was not just in the palace. He was among the people. And as he was among the people, he incurred greater favor from the people. The people had a greater fondness and respect for him as they saw him and the way that he dealt. For the scriptures tell us he behaved himself wisely in all his ways and the Lord was with him. David was a man of circumspection, of intelligence, of of humility, of capability. And the people loved him for it. So Saul becomes afraid as he sees David be successful and honorable in every endeavor We read in verses 15 and 16, Wherefore, when Saul saw that David behaved himself very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. Israel's growing to love David more. He's a man of war. He's a man of character. Saul is becoming more and more threatened, more and more afraid, more and more jealous of David. 
So it's time for Saul to pursue another tactic. He attempted to separate him from the palace. That didn't work. It's time to pursue another tactic. It's time to attempt in his jealousy to bring David down to his level. He is now not just trying to trip David up physically or see him killed. He's going to try to trip David up spiritually and bring him down to the same level of resentment that Saul is feeling in his own heart. And this is very common among those who are ensnared in unforgiveness and jealousy and resentment. They seek to justify themselves by bringing others down to their level, by making others resentful, by making others feel that same, the same pangs of unforgiveness. If you've interacted with or you've experienced this in your own heart before, even on a minor level, you know that sin loves company. And that one of the best ways that we seek, particularly as believers when the Holy Spirit is convicting us, one of the, the, the most common ways that we seek to justify our sin is by getting others to sin with us so that we feel less alone before God. Sin loves company. And Saul's going to try to trip David up here, make David stoop to his level. We read in verses 17 and 18, Saul said to David, Behold my elder daughter Merib, her will I give thee to wife, only be thou valiant for me, and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul said, Let not mine hand be upon him, but let the hand of the Philistines be upon him. And David said unto Saul, Who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? Now Saul conditionally promises his eldest daughter Merib to David if he will valiantly fight for him. And this is kind of an interesting idea because if you recall back in chapter 17, the last chapter we studied, you'll remember that Saul had promised that whoever would defeat Goliath would not only be a man whose family was free in Israel, but that he would give him his daughter to marry. And so David already, in a manner of speaking, has this by right. But what likely happened here is that though Merib had been promised to David, the dowry for her had not been reduced or changed. And David knew that there was absolutely no way he could accomplish this of getting this dowry. And we might assume this because this is what's going to happen with the next daughter of Saul, Michael. And we'll get there in just a moment. That David is going to feel insufficient because he doesn't have the capacity to meet the dowry. In Jewish culture, whenever a, a wife was to, uh, or a young lady was to leave the household, it would come with a dowry, that there would be a price paid for her. And this was because the woman in the household was excessively valuable. She was a, a, a valuable asset to the household as she would go get the water and she would, she would make the meals. And there were so many things that the woman was involved in in the household that when a father lost his daughter, he was losing a valuable asset because the daughter would go to live with the family of the, the husband. And so if you had sons, you'd be gaining daughters. If you had daughters, you'd be losing them when they got married. And so there would be a dowry paid as an attempt to compensate the father for what he had lost as his daughter leaves the home. Now, this really wouldn't have been the case with Saul, right? Because he had servants. He could get anyone he wanted. His daughters probably weren't all that useful in the sense of um, doing the, the labor and such that, that the women would normally do in the land. Um, but that being said, there's still a dowry. Still a dowry for them. So Saul likely still required this dowry and David knew he couldn't pay it. But Saul says this, be valiant for me and you can have my daughter perhaps saying that that would be the dowry. And so David does it. He serves. He serves with distinction. 
And then one day, very underhandedly, Saul tells David that um, that dowry could be purchased. David is noticeably humbled by the prospect that there is an avenue by which he could become the son-in-law to the king. He gladly performs his duties. Look at verse 19. But it came to pass at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given unto Edriel, the Moholathite, to wife. When it came time for David to marry Merib, Saul gave her to another man. We'll, we'll see the children of Merib and Adriel come up uh, much later in the scriptures, not in 1 Samuel. It seems likely, however, that Saul, having seen that David again did not die in the battle, was now trying to create in David resentment, promising daughter and then giving her away, stirring up offense in David's heart so as to turn the people against him and appear justified in his own hatred of David. His efforts fail, however. David humbly submits. His humility, his submission override these offenses. And again, though our focus is on Saul's poor actions as far as our application will be concerned, it becomes apparent just how much emphasis in the text is being placed upon David's exemplary character. He's been promised a wife. He did everything that was required of him to get this wife. And then at the last minute, she was taken away and given to someone else. It would be a very difficult situation to swallow. And yet, David handles it with absolute humility, with absolute graciousness. Verse 20 and 21, the scriptures say, And Michael, Saul's daughter, this would have been his younger daughter, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul said, I will give him her, that she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Wherefore Saul said to David, Thou shalt this day be my son-in-law in the one of the twain. So following Merib's marriage, Saul hears that his daughter Michael truly does love David and sees this as an opportunity to ensnare David once again in the hands of the Philistines. He's going to get a little bit more creative this time. He passes it off as though he was not pleased that Merib was given to Adriel. He says, David... You're going to be married to one of the two. And since one of them's already taken, you're going to have to get the other one. He's, he, he, he poses himself as the advocate of David here. And yet, David is again discouraged because there's this dowry issue. Look with me if you would. We'll read verses 22 through 26. And Saul commanded his servant, saying, Commune with David secretly and say, Behold, the king hath delight in thee, and all his servants love thee. Now therefore be the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spake these words in the ears of David. David, we want you. Saul wants you to be his son-in-law. Be his son-in-law. Marry his daughter, Michael. And David said, Seemeth it to you a light thing to be the king's son-in-law, seeing that I am a poor man and lightly esteemed? So he says, I'm, I'm poor. I have no means by which to pay this dowry, by which to get um, Michael. And the servants of Saul told him, saying, On this manner spake David. And Saul said, Thus shall ye say to David, The king desireth not any dowry, but an hundred foreskins of the Philistines, to be avenged of the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hands of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law, and the days were not expired. So the scheme is this. The servants tell David, David, Saul wants you to be his son-in-law. He wants you to marry Michael. David says, I can't afford that. Saul says, hmm, okay. Tell him that there doesn't, 
that the king doesn't want a dowry. He only wants 104 skins of the Philistines. Now, this harkens back to the reality that Israel, everyone in Israel on the eighth day, every male was circumcised. And in the circumcision, they would cut off their foreskin. And so by taking the foreskins of the Philistines, it would be an evidence that it was not Israelites, obviously, that were killed, that it was the enemies of Saul and of the Lord that were killed. And then Saul also is requiring here that David take them himself, which means David is going to go fight these men himself. And so Saul is like, okay, there's a one in 100 chance here, or a, a, a 100 to one chance here that David will be killed, right? One of those 100 guys has to be good enough to kill David. So we've got a good thing going on here. And he just, he, he's using this as a snare to destroy David. But look at verse 27. When the servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. He says, yeah, I can do that. And the days were not expired. Wherefore, David arose and went, he and his men, and slew of the Philistines 200 men. And David brought their foreskins and and gave them in full tale to the king that he might be the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, to wife. So it didn't work. David even doubles the number of foreskins, doubles the number of men that he killed and brings those foreskins in full tale. In other words, with the full accounting of what he had done to Saul, he says, I, I, I won these. This is the dowry. I've killed the enemies of the king to marry your daughter. For all of Saul's efforts to resist David, the Lord is thwarting him at every turn and preserving his goodness to David, preserving David's life. And you can only imagine that with each one of these steps, Saul's getting more and more jealous, more and more fearful, more and more frustrated. With every attempt to destroy David and David showing himself more worthy, he's revealing more and more how much of a better man before the Lord he is than Saul. And we close out the chapter in verses 28 through 30. Tell us this, And Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was yet the more afraid of David, and Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went forth, and it came to pass after they went forth that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was much set by. Saul is growing in his fear of David. David continues to grow and prosper, and his name becomes renowned in Israel, He is the most popular man in Israel. For our application this morning, we're going to consider what is happening here with Saul. This concept of jealousy. There are many virtues of David's life to consider, as I mentioned, and we're still going to consider them together on another day. But if you will indulge me, this passage affords us some fascinating looks into a very common emotion even among Christians, the emotion of jealousy. And we're going to ask four questions in our application today. Question number one, what is jealousy? This is going to form the baseline today for our learning, the baseline of everything that we're going to understand about jealousy. We need to understand what it is first. What is jealousy? Like the emotion of anger, and like all of our emotions, God has given them to us, and so there is a way for us to express them virtuously. Jealousy in and of itself is not inherently sinful. 
It is the expression of jealousy and the object of our jealousy that can lead us into a place of sinfulness. So in its most basic sense, jealousy is an emotion that arises from the perception of a rivalry between you and another that is threatening to distance you from something or someone which you perceive to be yours. The perception of a rivalry that threatens to distance or remove a person from something or someone which is perceived to be his. So you perceive something to be yours, you perceive something or someone standing between you and that which is yours, and the emotion that arises there is jealousy. Jealousy can happen in numerous and varied contexts. Jealousy is what happens when my wife and I hug each other and my little boy sees it. And he tries to squeeze between mama and daddy. And I'll give my, mo- I'll give my wife a kiss and he'll actually put his hands over my lips to keep me from kissing mama because that's his mama. And you don't touch his mama. And he gets jealous and it's obvious. You can see his actions expressing jealousy. Jealousy is what happens when my mother talks to her grandkids on the computer and her dogs are in the background barking because mama's talking to the, these grandkids instead of, giving her atten- instead of giving the dogs attention. These dogs are, are exhibiting jealousy. Jealousy is what happens when a man becomes upset over the success of others at a sport or at a job or in any aspect of life where he becomes upset at someone not for a wrong done against him, but because of someone else's success. Jealousy is what happens when a husband perceives another man to be getting too friendly with his wife. Jealousy is what happens when a wife sees her husband working 80-hour weeks and wishes that some of that time would be given to her and the family instead of to the job. Jealousy is what happens when God sees one of his children place their love, affection, or priority, or time on sin instead of on him. And as I give these several examples, it becomes apparent that jealousy is not always sinful and not always inappropriate. It is completely appropriate for a husband to become jealous within proper reason if a man is seeking to distance him or come between him and his wife. It is completely appropriate for a wife to become jealous within proper reason when her husband has yielded more time and effort into everything and anything other than her and her family and their family. It is certainly appropriate for God, within the reason directed by his character, to become jealous when his children stray away from him. And as we consider the times when jealousy is appropriate and when it is not, we understand that jealousy is appropriate when jealousy is legitimate. When jealousy is not driven by our personal insecurities, by our false motives, or by mistaken perception, but rather driven by that which is right. This jealousy is found in the context of spiritual obedience and loyalty throughout the scriptures, in fact. We can't trace all of the times in which we see this word jealousy used appropriately. But in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, by the way, this is the Ten Commandments. Look what we see here. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. God warns the nation of Israel against the sin of idolatry on the basis of of the reality that a part of his character is that he is a jealous God. He will not accept 
rivals. He will not accept rivalries to loyalty. This is not God being insecure. This is not God stepping outside of his rights. God has every right to be jealous over the people which he has not only created, but then he has redeemed. He has bought you, he has created you, and he has bought you with a price. And he has every right to see you as his, and every right to be jealous when something threatens the relationship between you and him. This is God's desire for exclusive loyalty from the ones he has redeemed, and it's not just appropriate, it is right. God's jealousy is an expression of his love. What kind of a God would redeem his people, ask for their loyalty, and then not care whether or not he received it? What kind of a husband would pursue a wife, marry a wife, and then not care whether or not something came between him and his wife? Do you see how that's, that's off? That's wrong? That doesn't make sense? It wouldn't make sense that a man would pursue a woman, marry a woman, covenant with a woman, desire that woman to become his own, and then once he marries her, just, okay, whatever. Not feel any sort of possession, not feel any sort of draw, not feel any sort of connection that says, you are mine and I am yours and this is exclusive what we have here and no one else has the right to it, but I have the right to it. That's what the husband and wife relationship is. You have the right to your husband. You have the right to your wife that no other person on, the, on earth has. That's the exclusivity. And there's something wrong when that feeling of rightness is missing. There would be something wrong if God was not jealous over his relationship with you. If God was not jealous for your time, if God was not jealous for your affection, if God was not jealous for your priorities. There would be something wrong if every time you choose something else above God, above spending time with Him, above loving Him, above obeying Him, He would just say, okay, whatever. There would be something wrong there. Because God has redeemed us to be exclusive to Him. The God who created and redeemed his people and does not guard them jealousy is outside that which is natural and right. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 19 through 22, Paul writes this, What say I then, that the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? As this concept of God being a jealous God, and I skipped, I mean, you, you go, through the, go through the minor prophets, go through all the prophets, you'll find jealousy everywhere. But as we continue and we step into the New Testament, Paul warns us that we as believers can abuse our liberty in Christ and thus make God jealous. While it is absolutely true that the idol is nothing, Paul says, and that a man doesn't need to withhold from eating meat because that meat has been sacrificed to an idol, that those things are all false and fake, and that because it's fake and we have liberty in Christ, that there, shouldn't, there isn't intrinsically a spiritual problem as we eat meat offered to idols. He says still 
that the last thing that he would desire is that a believer would ever do something that would knowingly and purposefully associate himself with a false god. And so to whatever degree they were in, in Corinth, drinking and eating meat and drinking drinks that were offered knowingly in, or in a dedication to idols, Paul says, you are running the risk of stirring up God's jealousy if your heart is not exclusively being directed toward him. God is jealous over your Christian loyalty. He's not interested in sharing with the world, sharing you with the world any more than you are interested in sharing your spouse with another. God wants exclusivity and in fact God expects exclusivity. The illustrations could continue of jealousy in the scriptures. The Bible tells us that God has promised throughout Israel's history that there was coming a day when he would provoke the nation of Israel to jealousy by removing from them his exclusive attention and giving it to another people group. In Romans 11, verse 11, we see this. I say then, have they, that would be Israel, stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to Jealousy. God's intent in doing this, in provoking Israel, or in, in bringing the Gentiles into the church, was that Israel would wonder why God had set them aside and take the steps necessary to pursue his exclusivity and his favor once again. And who is the people group that God is using to provoke Israel back to him through jealousy? It's us. It's the church of Christ. The church is God's instrument not just to win the world to Christ, but to provoke Israel to jealousy. And so if jealousy is across the board a, a sinful emotion, a sinful thing, then God is using us as the tool for sin, and of course that's not right. So we must see here that there are times where, in the appropriate context, jealousy is not a wrong thing. A part of the purpose for us following our salvation is that we would provoke Israel to jealousy and thus compel them to return to their God as they see the relationship that we have with their God, Jehovah. This being said, however, certainly not all jealousy is right. In fact, the overwhelming connotation of jealousy is that it is wrong. It is sinful before God. And as we consider again this definition of jealousy, we understand that anytime our perception of a rivalry is out of place, so that we are threatened by someone who is in fact not threatening, so that we are defending something that is not ours by right to defend, we end up the transgressor. When we see someone and we believe them to be threatening something that is ours, but they're not, that jealousy is wrong. When we seek to defend something that is not ours, this is kind of the, the boy in the schoolyard who's jealous over the girl that he's never actually talked to, but for some reason he's conjured it up in his mind that she's his. And then he sees some other boy talking to her and he gets angry at the boy for talking to the girl when he's never talked to the girl. It's not, she's not his by right or even by conversation. And yet he gets jealous over the guy for talking to the girl that's not his, but he wants to be his. That's sinful jealousy because it's not his by right, but he's jealous over it. Saul's jealousy in this passage is sinful in several contexts. First, because David has done nothing to warrant jealousy. He has done nothing to threaten Saul. 
He is acting in, David's acting in good rate, in good faith and uprightness of heart, and Saul hates him for his success. Second, because that which Saul is jealous for is the love of the people, personal glory of being king, both of which were misplaced to begin with and are no longer his to, to have. Saul doesn't care about the praise of God. Saul doesn't care about the duty to serve God. Saul cares about his kingdom, his throne, a throne which God has already said is no longer his. A throne which has been taken away from him. He's been rejected as king, and so he has no right to be jealous over the kingdom. He has no right to be jealous over his glory because his glory is misplaced. Only one of these faults would be sufficient to label his jealousy as sin, and he has all of them. So, what is jealousy? We've covered that. Question number two, what does sinful, excuse me, where does sinful jealousy come from? And notice I put sinful here. We're now transitioning exclusively to the warning against sinful jealousy. Not righteous jealousy, sinful jealousy. Where does sinful jealousy come from? The answer to these questions, again, will not apply to righteous jealousy. When we pinpoint sinful jealousy in our lives, we need to understand that it is always rooted in self. When our human sensibilities seek to claim the right to something that is not inherently ours, or seek exclusivity to something which is not exclusive to us, or demand loyalty from someone or something to which, uh, who, who is not obliged to give it. We are driven by selfishness to expect that which is beyond our rights. And this selfishness is sinful, sinful jealousy. Sinful jealousy can manifest itself in several ways. We've mentioned them already. It can manifest itself in a jealousy that is out of context, or it can manifest itself in a jealousy that is out of balance or out of proportion. The out-of-context jealousy is when a person is jealous over something they perceive to be theirs or want to be theirs but is not theirs. I already gave the example of the schoolyard boy, the boy who thinks he should have that girl but doesn't have that girl but is angry over anyone else who wants that girl. This is the man who wants a position in a company who hates anyone else who is seeking that position because he believes it should be his. This is the man who has a position in a company and who hates anyone under him who does his job well because he feels as though it threatens his position in that company. These are all examples of -of out-of-context jealousy, being jealous for something or someone that you have no exclusive right unto, whether that's a position, whether that's a person. The out-of-balance jealousy is when you do have a right to someone or something, to some measure, you have an exclusive right, or you, can, you ought to be able to expect some measure of exclusivity, but you hold it too tight, and in doing so, you become sinfully jealous. This is the husband who demands exclusivity of his wife to an unhealthy degree, so that he becomes furious, say, if, if someone else even speaks to his wife, or if she wants to do anything outside of the context of his little world, and so he becomes angry at that, that is, that is, he has the right to the exclusivity of his wife, but it needs to be within the context of reason. This is the man who will not help his co-workers succeed in their pursuits. He will not help train people to become better because he doesn't want them to become better than him. And so he'll refuse to help others at their job so that he's not threatened in his job. Yes, he has his job and he has the right to his job, but he's taking it so far that he is denying others the right to learn and the right to grow in order to preserve himself. This is the man that demands more of someone's time than is reasonable. 
because you're a person's boss, you think you can command their time even outside of work and you can call them and you can force yourself upon them. You are overly jealous of their time and their loyalty to your company. All of these are examples of out of balance jealousy, being jealous for something or someone beyond that which you have been given or that you have the right to claim. Saul had a little bit of each of these as he imposed his own paranoia upon David's actions, but also fiercely defended his right to a throne that had already been taken away from him. So where does this sinful jealousy come from? It comes from self. It comes from selfishness, from self-righteousness, from self. What are the results of sinful jealousy is our next question. When we understand what sinful jealousy is, where it comes from, we naturally ask this question. What does it result in? How do we see it? The results of Saul's sinful jealousy are very common among everyone who is sinfully jealous. And these results are, namely, fear and anger. Three times in 1 Samuel 18, the text tells us that Saul was afraid of David. David said and did nothing in direct opposition to Saul. David had no ambition to usurp Saul and his authority. And yet Saul's jealousy compelled him to be deeply threatened by David. He was threatened by David's love for God. He was threatened by David's success. He was threatened by David's abilities. Saul asked David to fight for the nation. David was successful. Doing exactly what Saul had asked, Saul was threatened. Saul tried to ruin David by taking away his daughter, Merib, at the last moment. David handled it well, and Saul was threatened. And when you find yourself threatened by pure and right success and actions of others, if you find yourself threatened by others' success, if you find yourself threatened by others' goodness, if you find yourself threatened by others' righteousness, if you find yourself threatened by others' obedience to God, you can know that you are exhibiting sinful jealousy, that it's attempting to well itself up in your life. When that guy shows up in the office and he's good at everything and you feel threatened at his presence so that you have trouble liking him just because he's so good, that, that guy, he's just... Boss loves him. Everyone loves, everyone loves him. That's sinful jealousy. If the reason you dislike a man is because he's too good or too nice, if the only mark against a person's character is that it's better than yours you can know that you're operating in sinful jealousy. And this is very close to the second result of sinful jealousy, a result which can work either in conjunction with or exclusive to the former. And this is the result of anger. Not only does sinful jealousy result in, in fear, fearing others, but it also results in anger. Usually when a person feels threatened, they will get angry, but this anger is an emotion unto itself. The text tells us in verse 29 that Saul became David's enemy continually. Literally, David's uprightness and the blessing of God upon David made Saul so angry that Saul counted David as his enemy. Saul hated David because David was right. And he did right. Saul hated David because David exposed Saul's spiritual deficiencies. David was everything Saul wasn't in the very best of ways. Everything that Saul tried to conjure up within himself through his natural rejection of God's power was manifest in David as he submitted himself to God's power. And this made Saul furious. So furious, in fact, that Saul was willing and tried on several occasions to kill David. 
Saul's sinful jealousy worked in him sinful anger, which compelled him to any number of sinful desires and actions. Not only was it sinful to be jealous, but it was sinful to be angry, and it was sinful to try to take the life of another man, and it was sinful to lie to him, and it was sinful to deceive him, and it was sinful to use his daughters as pawns to destroy him. Sin built on top of sin, and this is what happens with jealousy. Don't think that jealousy is going to stop at the sin of jealousy. It will build. It will grow and it will turn you into a person that you couldn't even recognize. Saul's sinful jealousy worked in him anger, compelled him to sin. And this is very important for us to understand about the sin of jealousy. It's a foundation sin. There are certain sins that are the the outworking of other foundational problems. This is one of those foundational problems. It's a foundation sin. It never rests alone. If allowed to live in and work in your heart, it will without fail foster other sin. Anger, unforgiveness, resentment, hatred. And what we find as we continue in the chapters to come is a man, the man named Saul, completely ensnared in and controlled by his jealousy. His jealousy will have given way to complete loss of control. Final question. We answered, what is jealousy? Where does sinful jealousy come from? It comes from self. What are the results of sinful jealousy? Always more sin. How do we guard ourselves against sinful jealousy as we close? To answer this question is to answer so many questions in the sinful life and really to look just toward the example of David in this text. You want to guard yourself against sinful jealousy? The word is humility. Humility. The lower our sensibility to self, the lower we see self, self-worth, self-importance, the greater our recognition of our small estate in light of the grandeur of God, the more we understand that our actions and our emotions are not to be dictated by self-interest but by biblical principle, the greater will be our capacity to resist the allures of sinful jealousy. And make no mistake, sinful jealousy is deeply alluring. Like with many other sins, it gives us a sense of superiority, of personal right, of validation with respect to our feelings, our rights. Sinful jealousy is like candy to the flesh. It loves it, but the results of consuming it are never healthy. David himself said this in Psalm 51.17, The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, or broken spirit, excuse me, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Saul found his worth in himself, in his position, in his abilities. And when that upon which he placed his worth was threatened, he became jealous, angry, and vindictive. He tried to get David to play his game. David didn't. So let me ask you rhetorically, why didn't David fall into any of Saul's traps? Why didn't Saul's last-minute renouncement of David's marriage break him? Why didn't Saul's attempts to pin David to the wall with a spear form in David deep-seated resentment? Well, the reason is because David's worth, his abilities, his success, his position, his future did not rest in himself. It rested in God. So when Saul threatened David's situation, David didn't feel threatened because Saul wasn't threatening him. Saul was threatening God's purposes for him. And that's God's problem, not David's. David's worth was not rooted in being married to the daughter of a king 
or being part of the king's family, or winning battles, or being popular. So when those things were threatened by Saul's jealousy, David felt no jealousy back because that was God's problem, not his. Because if God was going to give him the kingdom, God would do it. Because if God was going to give him the daughter of a king, God would do it. Because if God was going to give a victory over battle, God would do it. It's not David's problem, so David didn't see it as his right, so he didn't become jealous. So he didn't become resentful. So he didn't become unforgiving. Humility. When you feel yourself becoming jealous over something, here is what you know. You are taking upon yourself a right that is not yours. I mean, sinfully jealous, of course. David's personal worth was rooted in God and God cannot be threatened. But to have our worth in God is to recognize that our worth is not in ourselves. And to do this, we need to be a man or a woman or a child of true humility. What this means is when you feel that pull of sinful jealousy in your life, what you can know without question is that there is an element of your personal worth that is rooted in you and not in God. When you feel threatened by the proper and righteous actions of others, you can know that your pride and your self-worth are what is feeling threatened. When you feel angry by the abilities and the successes of others, you can know that it is the outworking of your feelings of insufficiency rooted in your pride. Self. And when we see these things, it is then that we must take the opportunity to examine our heart and to root out the cause of these jealous emotions. And so as we close, let me ask you this. How is your heart doing today? Has the Holy Spirit pointed out elements of sinful jealousy which have touched your heart and mind? Has the Holy Spirit brought to mind certain actions in your life which have been triggered by sinful jealousy? Some imbalance in your perception of what is yours by right? Has the Holy Spirit laid a person on your heart who you have been jealous over? And perhaps you need to ask their forgiveness for your jealousy? Whatever the Lord has done today, may I encourage you to allow the Holy Spirit to work. That you would say, as David said, search me, O God, and try my heart, and know me, and try my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That we would begin to root out any of these vestiges of sinful jealousy in our heart and life, so that we can be children of the living God, exemplary characters, have exemplary character before the world around us and that as we've said many times already that others may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Let's close in prayer.